We are still moving through our um, Acts series. And one of the reasons that we're going through the book of Acts is because Acts shows us story after story, passage after passage, what real authentic Christianity looks like. And the reason that's so important to see and be reminded of is because one of the things that Christians and skeptics of Christianity both uh, have in common is they so often get Christianity wrong. I think it's, it's, uh, it's equally as common for Christians as it is for people outside of Christianity to have a misunderstanding of, of what this lifestyle of following after Jesus actually is. And, and you know, the, ultimately, it, it, whether you're going to uh, embrace Christianity rightly or reject it outrightly, what you need in order to do either one of those things is to really understand what Christianity is. And there's probably no better book in the Bible for showing us that chapter after chapter after chapter, what real authentic Christianity is uh, than the book of Acts. And so this morning we are in Acts chapter 19. Uh, we're going to be in verses 23 through 41. And uh, like I normally do, I want to um, read this on the front end so we all have access to what we're talking about. So Acts 19, starting in verse 23, says, During that time there was a major disturbance about the way, which is what Christianity was once called, which is really amazing. I don't know why we broke from that. It's such a cool sounding, the way. But anyway, it's not it's Christianity now. It's fine. But the way is cool too. For a person named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, provided a great deal of business for the craftsmen. When he dissembled them, as well as the workers engaged in this type of business, he said, Men, you know that our prosperity is derived from this business. You both see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this man Paul has persuaded and misled a considerable number of people by saying that gods made by hands are not gods. So not only do we run a risk that our business may be discredited, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be despised and her magnificence come to the verge of ruin, the very one all of Asia and the world adore. When they'd heard this, they were filled with rage and began to cry out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion and they rushed all together into the amphitheater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's traveling companions. Though Paul wanted to go in before the people, the disciples did not let him. Even some of the provincial officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent word to him, pleading with him not to take a chance by going into the amphitheater. Meanwhile, some were shouting one thing and some another because the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Then some of the crowd gave Alexander advice when the Jews pushed him to the front. So motioning with his hand, Alexander wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, a united cry went up from all of them for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I just can't imagine chanting that for two hours. However, when the city clerk had calmed the crowd down, he said, Men of Ephesus! What man is there who doesn't know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple guardian of the great Artemis and of the image that fell from heaven? Therefore, since these things are undeniable, you must keep calm and not do anything rash. For you have brought these men here who are not temple robbers or blasphemers of our goddess. So if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a case against anyone, the courts are in session and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you want something else, it must be decided in a legal assembly. In fact, we run a risk of being charged with rioting for what happened today since there's no justification that we can give as a reason for this disorderly gathering. After saying this, he dismissed the assembly. This is God's word. 
So this, this story uh, is all about idolatry. The riot at Ephesus is all about idolatry. And so this passage gives us a really unique opportunity to talk about uh, the gospel as it is opposed to idolatry. And so there's three things that I want to kind of cover uh, with you today. The first is the nature of the human heart. The second is the nature of idols themselves. And thirdly, we're going to talk about how to deal with the idols of the human heart. And so with that, I want to get right into our first idea this morning. Number one is this. It's that the human heart is prone to idolatry. I want to read um, Acts 19, verse 26. It says this. You both see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this man Paul has persuaded and misled a considerable number of people by saying that gods made by hands are not gods. Uh, First off, those words are spoken by a man named Demetrius the silversmith. And and what's probably most significant about him is he was no fan of Paul's. Uh, He actually made his money crafting idols. And so Paul, and he hated Paul and Paul's message because Paul and Paul's message was cutting into his bottom line. But notice here in verse 26 that he was able, even being a critic of Paul, he was able to summarize Paul's basic message, which according to him is that God's made by hands are not gods. And so apparently Paul had preached that message so often that even his critics were familiar with it. And according to Demetrius' words here, we know that this message of Paul's had already had a huge impact, not just in the city of Ephesus, but he says throughout almost all of Asia. And and the the impact had been that he had had persuaded a, a whole lot of people to break from idolatry in order to follow Jesus. So what you learn here in just verse 26 is that evidently whenever Paul, whenever Paul preached the gospel, he preached it as opposed to idolatry. And that's because Paul knew that there wasn't a person alive who's not an idolater uh, because the human heart is so prone to it. Now, one of the things that I do when I, when I put my teachings together is I really try to think through what, what, what idea would be in my mind after I heard something that I said. So, so let me just pause here and highlight something. In hearing this, you might be thinking, okay, um, that was then, but this is now. Obviously, we do not live in a pre-scientific polytheistic culture. We live in a secular culture. And so in our culture, not only do people not believe in many gods, what's becoming more and more common is they don't believe in a god at all. So maybe you're, you're wondering, why is it that we're talking about idolatry in the 21st century. But if that is your mindset, or the mindset of anybody that you know, that betrays a very shallow understanding of what idolatry actually is. So I just want to take a few moments and make sure that we all have a common understanding of what idolatry is. So let's, let's talk about, first and foremost, what is an idol? Uh, and there's no better definition to that question, uh, no better answer to that question that, that, uh, that I've ever found, other than um, something Tim Keller wrote, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, and I think we have a slide for this because I wanted everybody to have access to it. Here's how Tim Keller defines an idol in his book, Counterfeit Gods. He says, it is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, or this is a big one, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. That's an idol. What that means is that you might believe in God. You might have a legitimate saving relationship by grace through faith in Jesus and therefore a relationship with, with, um, with God. But if there is anything besides God that is functionally more important to your happiness, your identity, your meaning, or your hope, 
then that thing, not only is it functionally your, your real God, but actually what it is, is it's an idol. Uh, an idol is, is anything that you look at and say, all right, if I could have that, you know, a relationship with God, that's great, that's important, but if I could have that, then my life would have value. Then I would finally be happy. Then I would finally have enough. Then my life could finally begin. Or else it's, it's something that you already have that you say, man, if I, if, if I lost that, if that was taken from me, then my life would no longer be worth living. And so uh, idolatry is not just a failure to obey God. At its essence, it's just resting your heart on something other than God. And so idolatry, more often than not, it, it's, not just, it's not just about doing bad things. It's taking good things and making them ultimate things. And when you understand idolatry in that way, you realize that the most powerful idols are actually not obviously overtly immoral things. The most powerful idols, the ones that tend to exert the, the greatest grip on our lives, are, are things that are in, good things in and of themselves. So for instance, uh, family can be uh, an incredibly powerful idol. Whether it's the approval of your parents that you never got and you're always looking for, uh, or it's that your kids would turn out a certain way that you really want them to. Uh, in our culture specifically, career and money are, in, are uh, very powerful, very common idols. Um, respect, significance, approval, um, you know, your reputation, your moral standing, your moral track record, your physical appearance, any kind of romantic relationship or any kind of political party or a social cause, that's a huge one right now. Hop on Facebook if you don't believe me. I don't have one. That's why I don't have one. Any of those kinds of things are good things in and of themselves that the human heart so naturally and so effortlessly tends to idolize. And so when, when we read the book of Acts, you can read Acts, and you, know, you saw this specifically the last two weeks. Last week we looked at the city of Athens, now we're in the, in the city of Ephesus. It's easy to look at, at those ancient cities and say, man, it's such a strange way to live with a, you know, a god on every idol and temple on every square and that kind of thing. Um, you know, that's so archaic. You know, how could people ever be that, that kind of superstitious and gullible? But the truth is... Uh, the only difference between them and us is that they were more honest with themselves. They just put a name on what they were doing. They were more um, explicit about something that's far more implicit in our hearts. Uh, and that's why, this is another great quote from the, from the, um, from the book Counterfeit Gods. Uh, the author Tim Keller said, Our contemporary society is not fundamentally different from these ancient ones. Each culture is dominated by its own set of idols. We may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. In ancient times, the deities were bloodthirsty and hard to appease, they still are. And so the point that I wanted to make on the front end of our time together uh, is that the world is, is, is full of things, specifically good things, that the human heart will almost on autopilot look to give us what only God can give us. Paul knew that. And that's why every time he preached the gospel, he preached the gospel as opposed to idolatry because the human heart is so prone to it. And to not realize that, to not recognize that in us is really just, it's to be very naive about who we are and how we, how we tend to live. So first off, what I wanted to cover was really the nature of the human heart. Uh, moving on from that, I now want to talk about the nature of idols themselves. And this is going to bring us to our second idea this morning. It's number two, that idols are paradoxical. And what I mean by that is that idols, according to Scripture, are a paradoxical mix of, of um, both power 
and powerlessness, meaning uh, that idols exert incredible um, control over the human heart. And so in that sense, they're very powerful. Uh, And yet at the same time, they are utterly incapable of providing what they promise. And so in that sense, they're empty and they're powerless. And you see both of those ideas right here in this passage. One's a little bit uh, more obvious than the other, but they're both here. First and foremost, uh, you can see their power. Notice all Paul is doing in Ephesus is simply uh, preaching the gospel against idolatry, saying God's made with hands are not are not gods at all. That's Paul's basic message here. And yet people lose their minds. I mean, there's rioting. The city's in an uproar. They almost had to bring Rome to kind of come down and put the clamps on all of them. Uh, just pushing against idolatry created that violent of a response in this city. Uh, and as it is in that city, so it is in our lives. The fact is, if, 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 if something in your or my life, if it's taken away from us, or actually even if it's just threatened, and that thing is a good thing, uh, then you'll be sad about that. You might even be mad about that. And that's totally normal. That's totally natural. God designed us to be emotional, relational creatures, to express emotions. Jesus certainly did that here. And so there's nothing wrong or sinful about that at all. But when something in our life is, is, is taken from us or, or even threatened in us like it was in Ephesus, and that thing is an ultimate thing, that thing is what we have, we have looked to for our ultimate meaning in life or our main source of hope or our main source of joy or the main thing that we're, we were leaning on as a crutch to help us face this life. When that is taken away, we will go ballistic. And that's exactly what you're seeing in the city of Ephesus. And so first and foremost, idols have incredible power and they control the people. They dominate the people who worship them. But on the other hand, kind of paradoxically, the Bible also talks about idols like they're totally powerless. Uh, and that comes out in that passage, this passage as well, just in a little bit more of an implicit way. So the section of Acts that we're in uh, focuses on Paul and his life. Actually, the remainder of this book is really going to focus mainly on Paul and his life. But what's really interesting is that this particular incident does not end with a speech by Paul. It ends with a speech by the city clerk. And a lot of commentators will say there's a reason Uh, It's a very unique thing, and there's a reason that Luke, the author of Acts, included that here instead of Paul's speech, the clerk's speech, which means that we should really pay careful attention to see exactly what's going on here. Now, if if you remember on the front end, if if you look at the clerk's speech, uh, it seems pretty common sense and pretty straightforward, like there's not a whole lot there because he basically gets up in front of the crowd and says, hey, settle down or we're all going to get locked up. And then everybody goes home. But what's really interesting when you look at the content of of what the clerk says is that his speech, first off, it's a rebuke, it's a correction, it's a, you know, hey, lighten up, you're overreacting here. But what's interesting is his speech is not aimed at Paul. It's aimed at the people who are involved in idolatry, right? Demetrius and the silversmiths and all the people involved in that lifestyle, that lifestyle of idolatry, uh, basically the reason that they were losing their minds is because they were concerned that Paul was coming to Ephesus and was going to turn everything upside down, but it was actually them and their idolatry that was doing that, not Paul and his message. And so ironically, what you're seeing here in Ephesus is that the idolatry that people were looking to in order to provide a, a stable foundation, some st- societal stability for the city of Ephesus, it was actually that very idolatry that was undermining the stability of Ephesus and causing this riot, and this violence, and this chaos, and almost got the whole city shut down. It's a very ironic thing. And and what what Luke is giving us here in this account is a perfect picture of something that the Bible teaches us over and over and over again. 
Old Testament and New, which is that idols always fail to deliver what they promise, and actually, you give them enough time, they'll give you the opposite of what they promise. That idols will always not only create, but even exacerbate the problems that we look to them to solve. That's exactly what was going on in Ephesus, and it's exactly what will happen in your and my life. Meaning if you count on an idol to make you feel loved, you will always feel lonely. If you look to an idol uh, to make you happy, you will always be chronically unfulfilled and unsatisfied. If you look to an idol to give you a measure of self-worth, to build your identity on, to give you self-esteem, you will always feel like you don't measure up. You will never feel adequate. You will, you will move through life plagued by an ongoing sense of insecurity. Idols always give the opposite of what they promise because they are utterly powerless to deliver. There's a great, um, there's a great um, article that was written about this. I, I, I came across a column by a guy named Benjamin Nugent whose words really um, sort of prove this point. He, he wrote a column about something that he identified in his life as monomania. Uh, I was reading this this week, and, and, and in this article, he, he just kind of, you know, he gets a little bit transparent and vulnerable, and he opens up about how, you know, for so often in his life, um, you know, he, all he wanted was to be a great writer. And in this article, he's explaining how that desire, which had become an over-desire, uh, is basically what had undermined his ability to write at all. And what he says, you know, he's talking specifically about, you know, over-emphasizing his career. This can be plugged into any area of our lives. I want to read this to you. And keep in mind, uh, he was not writing this as a Christian. I don't even think he's a believer. But here's what he said. When good writing was my only goal, I made the quality of my work the measure of my worth. I made the quality of my work the measure of my worth. For this reason... I was not able to read my own writing well. I couldn't tell whether something I had just written was good or bad because I needed it to be good in order to feel sane. Yeah, I mean, you could plug in anything there. I needed to be the perfect parent in order to feel sane. I needed my, my marriage to, to be going perfectly in order to feel sane. I needed people to like me in order to feel sane. I needed to get to this place in my career. I needed to impress my boss. I needed to get into that home in that neighborhood and drive that car in order to feel sane. He said, I lost the ability to cheerfully interrogate how much I liked what I had written to see what was actually on the page rather than what I wanted to see or what I feared to see. And what he's saying here is that when the main thing in his life was writing, to quote him, when he made the quality of his work the measure of his worth, it destroyed his ability to write. It distorted his vision. He wasn't able to actually see what was in front of him. Now, he defined his condition in that column, he called it monomania, but what he calls monomania, Scripture just calls idolatry. That's all that is. And, and his, his example is one of uh, literally countless ones I could have pulled out that prove the point that idols always fail to give what they promise, and, and you give them enough time, they're going to do the opposite. Anything that we allow to take the place of God in our lives is eventually going to do that. So let me ask the question, why is it, and we kind of spoke to this a little bit on the front end, but why is it that every time Paul preached the gospel, he talked about idolatry? We know that from Demetrius's quote. It, Paul was famous for this with his fans and with his critics, that if he was going to come through a city, he wasn't just going to talk about Jesus, he was going to talk about Jesus as opposed to the idols that you're worshiping instead of Jesus. So the question is, why did Paul think that those two needed to be married? And yeah, I think one answer is, like we talked about on the front end, because Paul knew that everybody struggles as an idolater, that that's the default setting of the human heart. But I think there's a deeper answer there. I think there's something underneath that that's really important for you and I to understand. 
See, until you and I learn how to contrast the gospel with idolatry, what I'm convinced Paul would say and what the rest of Scripture would confirm is that until you and I learn to contrast the gospel with idolatry, not only do we not fully understand the gospel, we don't even fully understand ourselves. The the gospel is, just so we're all on the same page, the gospel is that you and I are offered a salvation, not by anything that we have done, have failed to do, or could do, but by what Jesus has done for us. That is the unique message of the gospel. That's why we call that good news. Um, But with that... Uh, what the Bible teaches is that everybody is trying to earn their salvation by something that they're doing. Now, one way to oppose the gospel, you, you can do this in a very religious way, or you can do this in a very secular way, which I think is largely misunderstood in our culture. One way to oppose the gospel, kind of you know, the, the, the classic way to oppose the gospel, is by going through life believing that if I live a good enough life to keep the rules and you know, say sorry when I do something wrong and try to do one nice thing a day, whatever it is, then God will bless me. God will save me, you know, if, if that's kind of the way that it works on the other side of eternity. And certainly he'll give me the life that I feel that I'm owed. That's the classic way to oppose the gospel. We call that being a Pharisee. And I think most people understand that as it relates to and opposes the gospel. And most people are able to understand that. But what's far less understood in our culture is that even if you're a secular person, you would not consider yourself religious at all you are still trying to earn your own salvation, even if you don't use that term, and you are using and practicing idolatry in order to get there. I know this is a sermon full of quotes so far, but I'm going to give you one more. It's from a book that I read a while ago called A Meal with Jesus. I I went through more than one highlighter just highlighting sections of this book. As soon as I read what I'm about to share with you, I knew I was going to use it at some point in the teaching, and, you know, here we are. Sorry, something in my eye. Good golly. How did this not happen outside and it happens inside? Okay, here's the quote. Everyone is trying to find salvation. Uh, They might not ask, what must I do to be saved? But everyone has some sense of what it is that would make them satisfied, fulfilled, and accepted. And the author goes on and he lists a number of things that might serve to to fulfill that role in, in, in a person's life. He says, success in business, the admiration of men, a beautiful home, a liberated homeland, a secure future, the worship of women, a great body, wealth and prosperity, the acceptance of friends, a happy family, or a dream vacation. All of that can serve functionally as someone's salvation. The author went on and explained, every version of salvation involves a principle, a rule, and a law. And I would just ask you as I read this to really search yourself and see if this doesn't highlight something in your own life. Only you'll know. He said, every version of salvation involves a principle, a rule, a law. If your idea of salvation is to have friends accept you, then your first commandment will be, thou shalt not be uncool. And uncool people must be avoided at all costs. If your idea of salvation is a beautiful home, then your prophet will be Martha Stewart. Your rule will be antique pine, tiled floors, and distressed paint. I know I got somebody. Uh, Or maybe clean lines, white walls, no clutter. Your first commandment will be, thou shalt not be untidy. (laughs) But I thought this was really helpful. Then the author broke down what this is going to do interpersonally to relationships between you and other people. 
<clears throat> he said, if other people don't measure up, then we despise or avoid them. And I just want to pause here. One of the clearest ways for you and I to be able to tell that we are looking to something, some area of our lives to be our functional salvation is if we judge other people for failing to meet that standard. Here's what I mean. If I look to me being a good dad to justify me before God, that being a good dad is kind of my functional salvation, what that will always manifest itself as is me needing to point out what I perceive to be the failures in fathers around me. That is how the human heart seeks to justify itself. That's, that's what he's saying here. Let, 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 me, let me read this again. It says, if other people don't measure up, then we despise or avoid them. Yet like the Pharisees, we need them so we can feel good about ourselves. And then if we don't measure up, then our quote unquote God turns on us and condemns us. Life is seen as a race. And you're a loser if you're not successful, wealthy, or attractive. But, he concludes, self-salvation doesn't work. And he gives us two reasons that this is such a deadly game. It doesn't work because, number one, none of these versions of salvation deliver. They don't bring satisfaction, identity, or joy. Number two, self-salvation doesn't work because we can't measure up. If you want to be admired by blokes, but you're not blokey enough, then you're condemned. And even on a good day, you'll wonder what others think of you. If you want security and prosperity and you lose your job, then you're condemned. And even when you have a job, you'll be anxious, over busy, and unable to say no. Now, all the author is doing there is describing the secular version of the game that Pharisees play, where you might not be trying to earn your salvation through your moral efforts, but you are looking for satisfaction outside of God. You are looking for something that only God can ultimately provide outside of God. And that in and of itself is the essence of idolatry. Everybody's playing this game in some way, shape, or form, whether they consider themselves to be a highly religious or a completely secular individual. But the most important thing that I wanted to drive at with this move here in this teaching is that it doesn't work. And so idols, they are incredibly powerful in the sense that they can dominate the human heart, but they are utterly empty and utterly powerless to give us anything that they promise us. So from here... Uh, on out as we kind of begin to conclude our time together, there's one question that this, of course, all raises. I mean, all I've tried to do up to this point in the teaching is to hopefully at least get everybody here thinking that the human heart's prone to idolatry and it is a deadly, devastating, dead-end game. And there's not a single one of us that doesn't struggle with this. And so the question that this all raises is, okay, well, what do we do about it? And to answer that question, how do we destroy idols in our lives? To answer that question, I want to give you two final ideas during our time together. And the first one is this. Number one, idols must be identified. All right, uh, obviously, the first and most important step when you talk about dealing with idols in your life is identifying them because you can't fight against something that you don't know is there. Uh, it's not a question of if they are in your heart. It's simply a matter of what those idols are. And the reason that I say that, I know that's a bold statement to make, but the reason I say that is because none of us love God the way that we should. None of us perfectly love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And every single one of us tends to look to someone or something outside of God to give us what only God can give us. And so the first step is to begin identifying what those things are. Now, maybe you're, you're asking yourself, okay, well, how do I do that? 
And this is the most practical part of this teaching. The best way, that, there, there are a number of ways to do this, but the quickest and the most all-encompassing way to find out what idols control your life are simply to look at your most uncontrollable emotions. All you have to do is look at your most uncontrollable, this, this nails me to a wall when I think about it. All you and I have to do is look at our most uncontrollable emotions, specifically the ones that never really seem to lift You know, we might find momentary periods of of respite, but we always go back to them. They plague us again. And specifically emotions that drive us to do things that we know are wrong. Whether it's it's anger that is just totally inappropriate to the situation at hand. You know, you ever blow up over something and then, you know, a day or a week later you're thinking, what the heck was that about? Even if you've never said that out loud. Whether it's anger that's inappropriate to the situation in front of you or anxiety specifically that's aimed at a specific thing. Or, 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 you know, a, a devastating kind of crippling sense of guilt over things that, that you failed to do right or things that you have done wrong. Or just, the, just an ongoing sense of fear about what might lie ahead of you. All you and I need to do is trace those uncontrollable emotions, be it anger, anxiety, guilt, or fear, or whatever else, far enough back into our hearts. And eventually we will find something that is sitting on the throne of our heart where only God deserves to be. But obviously... Simply identifying idols is not enough in and of itself. If the G.I. Joes have taught us nothing else, it's that knowing is only half the battle. That joke did exactly as poorly as I thought it would. So secondly, and this is going to be our last idea today, uh, after identifying idols, they must be identified, but number two, idols must be replaced. So when you talk about, you know, the, 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 the process, and it's a lifelong process of you and I facing ourselves and facing what's going, in, uh, what's going on in our lives and competing with the spot that only God deserves in our lives, one of the most important Bible verses we can keep in mind is Ephesians 6.12, which reminds us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. And what that means is that the, the, the issues in our hearts, the problems in our hearts are not purely natural. It's not as though if I just, you know, get on the right supplements, surround myself with friends, maybe talk to a counselor, and, you know, walk a mile a day or something like that, then I'm, you know, going to see freedom from all of these things. What Ephesians 6.12 is reminding us is that there are powerful, supernatural forces behind the idols in our hearts. And what that means is that we cannot simply deal with them in and of our own power. And I think that is so important to remember because one of the, one of the biggest what causes us so much trouble, this is so true in my life and I'm sure you've experienced it in yours, is when we shift into this mindset that we can deal with the problems in our heart in and of our own strength. What that will lead us to do is, is we'll, we'll try to uproot idols uh, and, and just, you know, may, basically what we'll do is we'll, we'll try to restrain our heart and we'll get into uh, behavioral modification. And for a time, we might be able to modify our surface level behavior, but anybody who's done that for any length of time realizes when it's all said and done, all you've really done is just traded one version of idol worship for another. And so the, the truth is, if an idol is going to be dealt with in a holistic way in our lives, that idol needs to be replaced with something more powerful than that idol. And that is where... Jesus comes in. The only way to deal with an idol in a lasting way in your and my life is to see Jesus more clearly, to be moved more deeply by the love that he has for us to the point that Jesus becomes more beautiful and more attractive and more appealing to us than all of these false substitutes that we call idols. 
And there's a perfect picture of this in the verses just prior to the passage that we read today. I want to read you uh, Acts chapter 19, verses 17 through 20. This is what happened that led up to the riot at Ephesus. It says this in verse 17. It says, This became known to everyone who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. Then fear fell on all of them, and this is so important, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Right after that, verse 18, many who'd become believers came confessing and disclosing their practices while many of those who would practice magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. So they calculated their value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. In this way, the Lord's message flourished and, and prevailed. What you're looking at in those verses is a crystal clear picture of what it looks like when the power of idolatry loses its grip in people's lives. And just so, just so you're clear on what exactly we just read, what, what you read there is that all of these people from Ephesus got all of their idolatrous tomes together, these magic books, they burned them, and the estimated value was 50,000 pieces of silver. That's the modern-day equivalent of $6 million. Now, I don't think it's wrong to say $6 million can go a, a pretty decent way in the year 2020. I wouldn't mind running into $6 million. But $6 million goes a whole lot further 2,000 years ago in the Roman Empire. That's Mediterranean seafront property that these people just lit on fire. And so what you're seeing here is that people so clearly saw the idolatrous lifestyle they were living, they were so disgusted by it that they chose rather to burn those books than make a dime off them for fear that somebody else might get locked up into the dead-end lifestyle that Jesus had just delivered them from. That's what freedom looks like. And so maybe you find yourself asking the question, how do I have that kind of freedom in my life? How do I see these idols that are consistently stealing my joy and leading me to things that God says are wrong and devastating to me? How do I see that kind of freedom? And it's, it's, it's crystal clear. It says so on the front end of this passage. What you're reading in verse 17 is that the, the power of idolatry was broken in their lives when and only when the name of Jesus was magnified in their lives. That's what I mean when I say idols must be replaced with something more powerful than that idol. And as it was with people in Ephesus 2,000 years ago, so it is for us today. So let me call the worship team up and we're going to close with this. The way that Jesus gets magnified in our lives is by us looking back to the gospel, going again to the gospel. Because the gospel shows us that Jesus has done for us what no idol will ever, ever do for us, which is give his life for us. And that really fundamentally is the difference between Christianity and idolatry. That fundamentally is the difference between true and false religion. Uh, in idolatry, your God demands that you make sacrifices, that you sacrifice everything. What, if, if, you're, if, you're, if your idol is your career, your career will demand that you sacrifice everything. Your, your family, your mental health, whatever it is. If, if your God is your reputation... It will demand that you sacrifice everything. Your authenticity, your integrity, you'll have to change who you are depending on the people that are around you. You'll never be able to speak truth and love for fear of you know, that costing your reputation in the eyes of other people. If your God is money and the safety and the security that, that you look to money to give you, then it'll demand that you compromise all of your values. You sacrifice all of your values to get more and more and more and more. But, but the hallmark of idolatry is that no matter how much you sacrifice for your God, what you were looking for is always, only, ever, just out of reach. 
Christianity is exactly the opposite of that. Christianity says that God, instead of demanding that you make sacrifices for him, first became the sacrifice for you. And he did that. He did that so that you and I could find all that our souls are designed to need in a life-giving relationship with him. The hope and the meaning and the peace and the joy, the satisfaction, the fulfillment that we need can be ours, can never be taken away from us by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. When that message came to Ephesus, and that was Paul's message, when that message came to Ephesus, and people understood how different this was, and they saw how beautiful and how worthy of worship and praise Jesus was, it transformed them forever. And when we understand what the people of Ephesus 2,000 years ago understood, when we see Jesus the way that they saw Jesus, when Jesus is magnified in our lives as it was in theirs, it will free us from the grip of idolatry, it will make us agents of freedom in the lives of others, and it will transform us in ways we can't even imagine. I want to leave you with this. When the gospel came to the city of Ephesus, it turned the whole city upside down. By, by God's grace, that same gospel can do that same thing in your and my life. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Father God, in my heart of hearts, I am so convicted. There's not a person listening to this right now that is not struggling with idolatry, myself included. God, would you help us to see the gospel with, with such clarity? Would you help us to see that in idolatry, our God will call us to make sacrifice after sacrifice, never giving us what we're really looking for. Would you help us to see that as clearly as it is? And in seeing that, to see the gospel, which tells us that you, Father, you made the ultimate sacrifice for us. You sacrificed your son. Your son, Jesus, sacrificed his life so that we could have access to all that our soul so desperately needs. Father, would you cause that truth to turn us as a community completely upside down, transform us, heal us, make us agents of change in the people that you placed in our life. We ask these things with expect, bold expectation by grace through faith in the name of the crucified and risen Savior of the world, Jesus.